we actually fully believe, like I fully believe in Cassie and that like maybe she's not believing in herself 100% of the time. Maybe I'm not even believing in myself 100% of the time, but I am believing 100%. That, that's a great answer. Yeah. You were looking objectively at the situation, you know. You've had many people tell you, for example, that you're expressing doubt about something and, the, and there are people that you respect greatly and they're like, this is a sure bet, you know. So we can look more objectively 100% of the time. And, and, and believing in someone doesn't always mean that every every handbag or every Instagram post has to be the greatest thing ever, you know, uh, in terms of how it's received because you only have so much control. But you know that the majority of the times things are gonna stick because of, of the track record that, you know, we've seen. Those are the men behind two public-facing women, one of whom owns multiple multi-million dollar businesses. And this is Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. Welcome back everyone to another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. It's said behind every great man is a strong woman. Ever wonder where this quote originates from? Well, it isn't entirely clear, but the very first citation to this quote goes to one Merrill Frost, the star quarterback for the 1945 Dartmouth football team. After suffering terrible burns to his face during World War II that required numerous surgeries, quarterback Frost captained the 1945 team and he later coached. The Philadelphia Sports Writers Association named him, quote, the most courageous athlete of 1945. Upon receiving the honor, he was quoted as saying, They say behind every great man there's a woman. While I'm not a great man, there's a great woman behind me. Who was this great woman? Well, that was much harder to find. After a bit of digging around, the great woman appears to have been Pauline McKenzie, Frost's high school sweetheart. As a testament to her position behind her husband, I could find pretty much nothing more on this great woman. Now, times, they have certainly changed quite a bit since Frost's days in the red zone. Women are no longer content with merely the supporting role. Whether in sports, 40% of all sports participants are female. Business, 42% of all U.S. businesses are owned by women. Or even at home... 30% of women make more money than their husbands. Women continue to eat away at the market share that was previously dominated by men. What does this signify, though? Well, first, it proves false the notion that there's only enough success to go around for half the human population. There was indeed plenty of empty square footage under the spotlight of success, and women have been eagerly taking the stage. But I also think it speaks to the many men who were quite content to take a backseat, not in their partnerships with women, but in the leadership that their careers demanded and the attention that such leadership often invites. What do I mean by this? This week, I invite two men, one of whom you'll definitely know, and another you may know about as well as Pauline McKenzie, to talk about how they've found themselves behind the women who've launched themselves into public-facing careers and helmed the prows 
of their own businesses. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Two years ago, my husband Anthony was the director of music at a large university. As his title suggests, he was not only a tenured professor of music, he spearheaded the entire music department, setting their annual agendas and goals, liaising with the university's leadership to facilitate the timely realization of those goals, providing support to the music faculty, all while overseeing the curriculum of thousands of the school's music students. I was a partner at a large law firm. I was vice chair of the firm's National Bankruptcy and Reorganization Group. I was also the creator of a food blog called The Korean Vegan, one that was starting to show immense potential as the cornerstone of a potentially profitable business. After months of hemming and hawing, I finally decided to take the plunge, withdraw from partnership at my law firm, and go all in on The Korean Vegan. Our professional lives were about as different and separate as you can imagine. Notwithstanding the pandemic's attempts to mush us together physically, quarantine only reinforced those distinctions. I could now observe firsthand just how people worked when not under the gun of the billable hour, without any pressure to defend their hourly rates to their extremely shrewd clients. Where I grew anxious with every wasted 0.1 hour I spent in the bathroom or getting a refill on my coffee, it seemed the majority of Anthony's workday consisted of meetings, many of which would languish long past the hour that was budgeted for them on his calendar. When not stuck in endless, endless Zoom calls, he would pore over emails, often asking me to look them over for tone. I would soon learn there is a lot of politicking in academia. It became clear to me that Anthony was driven by a need to perfect every last detail that went into the big picture, whereas I was laser beam focused on making sure that my client's big picture actually materialized before a deadline. Still, in our personal lives, we were equal partners. This was one of the most important things that I required when I began dating after my divorce. I needed a partner, not a dependent. A lot can go into the word partner, but for me, the foundation of any working partnership is respect. Now, what's respectable is different for everyone. What commands my respect might actually elicit your distaste. I imagine what I wanted in my partner had a lot to do with my father and his relationship with my mom, as well as all the mistakes I'd made in my doomed first marriage. Regardless, because I respected Anthony, I obviously included him in all my rumination regarding the big career change when my little blog all of a sudden became not so little anymore. But it was still my blog, and it would be my business if I finally decided to take that plunge. So you can imagine my surprise when Anthony told me that he, too, wanted to leave his tenured professorship, one of the most secure and prestigious jobs a person can land, to work for the Korean vegan full-time. We were actually sitting on a bench across from the Starbucks on Broadway, about a block from our condo in Boys Town. We were still living in Chicago at the time. It was fall. Pumpkin spice was in full swing, the heavy foliage creating an auburn vignette as neighbors and their dogs crossed my vantage, and I considered the import of Anthony's words. The thing is, Anthony had never had a job outside of music before, 
It was actually something he often described with a fair amount of pride. You know, it's interesting because I always bragged that my only job, I never had a job that wasn't music. And so that was true until, uh, you know, apart from mowing a lawn or parking a car or something like that, um, a one-off type of job. But that was true, of course, until we moved out um, here to L.A. and I left my my uh, professor job. So I, I started playing the piano when I was three and that was always my career in some way, shape or form when I was about... Early 20s, mid-20s, my career as a concertizing pianist, meaning I made my living um, almost 100% from playing, touring around, playing uh, concerts, usually either solo, and we're talking mostly classical music, or with as a soloist, featured performer, guest performer with symphony orchestras. Um, so I always like to say that, that that was like the first half of my professional life, but then in 2000, 2008, I started teaching at Loyola University in Chicago, and then that was the job I was in. I continued performing, but not at the same um, same level, not as often. And then that was my, I was a full-time professor, so that was my job mm-hmm. until uh, last year when we moved out here. In fact, just prior to Anthony's offer to work for me, I told him I'd do my best to support him in his career as a professor at another university or as a concertizing pianist. I won't be able to travel as much to your concerts as before, but I'll support you in every way that I can. He paused for a second and then said something I won't ever forget. If you don't let me be a part of the Korean vegan in some meaningful way, it's going to be a problem for you and me. And by you and me, it was abundantly clear that he meant our marriage. I was so taken aback by Anthony's admission, by his warning. But it wasn't that he was trying to, like, coerce me into letting him join the Korean vegan as it was an extremely, extremely rare moment of vulnerability. He wanted to join the ride, and I was standing at the gate asking for his ticket. But it was such an unexpected thing for him to say, and I always wondered what he truly meant by it. Well, with trying to keep this uh, short, first of all, the whole concertizing thing, I know that world backwards and forwards. So it's not an easy world. So you, you, no matter which way you go, you, you luck out and you get the, the right agents and you're playing all over. Okay, that's not a great situation for our um, relationship if I'm traveling all the time playing concerts. Um, we travel, we should tell people, we travel like almost 100% of the time. Uh, together, right? So we're we're not w- one of these couples where one person disappears for four weeks. So that's that's not something that w- would have uh, really worked. And also, I think almost nobody understands how much work concert artists really put into their craft. I literally mean four to six hours sitting at an instrument a day. These days, I put on like headphones to try and and, and edit something. And Joanna's yelling at me, "Hey, where's this? Where's that? Where's that?" It's like you have to like leave me alone if that was going to be the the. So it's 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 a whole other world that I was I'm not particularly interested in getting back into. Incredibly stressful beyond belief. I always thought that everything was like peanuts compared to walking on stage and playing in 90 minutes of music from memory. Um, so it wasn't anything I was particularly interested in. I didn't really see that as something that I wanted to do. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that because I'm so aligned with the mission, 
uh, and of course, wanting to support you. You know, I always tell people if you had a handbag company, well, I wouldn't be particularly aligned with that issue, but I'd still want to support you. But I probably wouldn't say I'm going to give up my professor job mm. to to want to um, uh, work for the the Korean vegan. But you know, it's interesting. Around 2000, 2001, I started my own record label. So I always thought it'd be kind of cool to start a business. But to be perfectly honest, and I should say, like, I always had in my mind that I'm either going to sign with one of the big record labels, Sony, you know, I can go down the list, but whatever, or I'm going to start my own thing. And it was just about artistic uh, vision. And then we, we ran that record came, uh, company for eight to 10 years before, you know, digital downloads came into play and it didn't make any sense anymore. But um, so I, I think I always had, like, this interest in what would it be like to sort of be, you know, running a company or help steer a company, help grow a company, company, that kind of thing. And so that, that was also uh, appealing. I had in my head that, you know, I might wake up one day and be 65 and say, you know, we should have tried living in somewhere else in LA in in, in Rome or, or whatever, you know, that kind of adventurous mentality. I would not have, left my job if the Korean vegan wasn't doing what it was doing, if you weren't uh, so dedicated. I often describe the way that you attack every day as, as me in my 20s. Mm. But um, so seeing that, all those things, you know, were very, very important. And then the last thing is that the mission I'm 100% aligned with. Um, I'm sure there are other uh, areas, um, businesses that I, I would have been uh, excited about, but it's hard to imagine something, me being as excited as I, I am for what what you do and the mission behind the Korean mm. Even Even now, despite what we talked about before, like I have to be part of the Korean vegan, it's hard to imagine like I'm not going to be part of the Korean mm. vegan because our relationship just doesn't work like that. Again, the idea even of me disappearing just from a nine to five gig, you know, that that's not really how our relationship works. So um, I don't think that would that would ever happen. Sam is the chief operating officer of PopFlex and Blogilates, the two fashion and fitness companies created by the extraordinary Cassie Ho. Like Anthony, he came from a background that probably wouldn't immediately stick out as one that would lend itself to fashion and fitness apparel. I was actually born in the Soviet Union. I moved uh, when I was like three to the U.S. And so I've been in America the rest of my life. And I grew up in Orange County. Um, I was always very into like math and business and finance and basketball. You know, normal kid. And then in college is where I met Cassie. And I, I was the finance tutor, actually. So I was good at finance, I guess. And so I got, to, I was a senior and I got hired as like the finance tutor in school and she was a junior and she got a bad grade in class and then so funny is she was actually one of the best students in the class like I would do some of the grading and things like that and I, I didn't know who she was but I just like would see like the way she wrote and the way she like did things and I could tell like what kind of person she was which was like very much like like the person going above and beyond but she got a B minus on a test and came in and so that's when we started talking and then kind of the relationship blossomed but during that time I obviously needed I was graduating and so um, I went to get a job, and so I worked in insurance underwriting uh, uh, yeah. for just mm -hmm. like a year mm -hmm. as we were kind of figuring our lives out. And then after that, I ended up working kind of full-time with Cassie. Much like that moment on the bench across from Starbucks, Sam, too, had a light bulb moment, though he admits there were some parts of his leap that were markedly different from Anthony's. There was one specific point where 
Cassie got her first like day rate. And that's kind of, I remember, you know what? I went back to my old job when I moved back. So I moved back to LA and I went back to my old job making very low income. And then I remember Cassie got her first like day rate doing a, like a full day of Pilates for a company that hired her. And I was like, oh, like that's like half my salary and you're making this in a day. And I was like, maybe there's a future here. Mm -hmm. And we weren't, again, it wasn't like we were trying to do this for money, but like obviously we were trying to work jobs. Like we were, so then it was like when we can do this as our full-time job, that's when um, things changed for sure. I remember while sitting there on that bench across from Starbucks, as I imagined our lives as personal and professional partners, I wondered, well, what would Anthony even do for the Korean vegan? He was a musician and a teacher, neither things that would be immediately accretive to my business. But then again, it wasn't like mathematics and insurance underwriting would come into play for a burgeoning YouTube fitness star. So what did it mean for Sam to work full-time with Blogilates? It'd be like little things like, oh, print out flyers. I don't know. I don't even remember, honestly, at this, like at the very, very beginning, I think she made the website, but I would be like the one in the back end kind of trying to figure out how to do things. I remember her filming or me filming in her, at my parents' house actually. And that was the first video. And then it was just like, we didn't know what we were doing. Like, that's really like, it would be like, I remember specifically, like I was like zooming in on a camera and going really far back. And then like, why did we do that? Like, I would say I was a very good videographer and I was doing a lot of cool things. And especially doing it for a couple of years, you obviously are going to like learn and get better. But then when you can hire someone whose, you know, whole profession and like education is that you're going to also learn. We were just like college kids. And I don't know, we just like, I think we were both like smart, like figure things out. Now PopFlex is 99% of what I, I mean, it's probably 100% of what I do. Where in the early days, it was all blogilates, which was very much... YouTube videos and filming and much more Cassie as like a camera presence where now we're running an actor business. And so it's really changed. So my day is very different all the time. I mean, I think the main things that I'm in charge of is inventory. So making sure that we're keeping products in stock and then also purchasing in the right amount so that, you know, we can buy and sell at the out. So um, that's probably my number one thing. And also just kind of connecting the marketing team and the product development team. So, and kind of just making sure everyone's working together and on the same page. There's like 18,000 other things that I, I can probably say about all of that. I'm also HR. So like literally yesterday I was onboarding a new employee and making sure that they're set up in Slack and everything else, things like that. But like, so there's things that just pop up every day. We have 22 full time and then we probably work with like 60 contractors for the last like three or four years we've grown over 100 which has been really exciting but at the same time obviously it's like there's just more and more going on so it turns out that sam was at least for a good amount of time literally behind the camera while cassie accumulated millions and millions of youtube subscribers the legion of fans who would in the future also become diehard customers of her clothing line I wondered whether Sam was okay with playing what was clearly a supporting role. I would say, like, I had zero of that, and I don't like being in front of the camera. I don't it like... It was, like, very natural. I think that's also why maybe we work so well as a couple, too, is that she is very happy and wants to kind of be on camera, be in front of things, where I'm very much, like, I like be being behind the scenes, and I like doing, I don't want to say the dirty work, but, like, 
I like making sure things like progress and happen where she likes like the ideas and the big like excitement. I mean, I think that's how I like it where she is very much forward facing and I'm kind of the supporter role. Like I, I think ever since I was young, I felt like I was very much like a perfect number two. Like mm-hmm. I know I'm not the number one as like a forward facing person. So I feel like it worked out perfectly where Cassie, I think is very much the like alpha and mm-hmm. I'm very much the support. So, and she's very much like getting things started, like making things move. And then I'm the one usually to like kind of keep it going and mm. making it like go But what about someone who started soaking up the spotlight at the tender age of three and basically didn't know a time in his career when he wasn't center stage? I was in front of the camera my whole life, it feels like. And then, you know, leading the program, as I mentioned earlier. So I've even while I was doing that, I never had a problem um, helping somebody out and being behind the camera. I'd like to think I had zero ego that way, but... For me, it's no, no do you problem at all. No. Well, it's a I great always, question. yeah, I always say, yeah, there might be a time when I'm, um, I, I want to perform again, or I want to do this again, or I want to teach again, or I want to start a, a music channel on YouTube. Who knows? Like, I'd leave the, the doors open to that. We didn't say like, well, you're locked into this forever. Even now, we're still, you know, week by week, uh, figuring out what it is I do for the Korean vegan and. Uh, um, where where I, I fit best, this, that, and the other thing. So even if I decided to go play concerts again and I'm playing big stages and the camera's on me, it doesn't mean that I would have any problem helping people get their books in order to get signed by you and being completely behind the camera. Now, Anthony touches on something that Sam also implies, a lack of ego, or at least the kind of ego that requires a great deal of massaging. Part of that, of course, is learning to be upfront about what you know you won't be good at. One of the first things, um, correct me if I'm wrong on the dates, but I think it was 2021, spring of 2021, things really sort of started going to another level for the Korean vegan, for you and the Korean vegan. And you started getting all these speaking engagements and you didn't have an agent uh, to handle any of that stuff. And it was a little bit overwhelming. I think you may have even agreed to do one or two for, for free. free. I can't remember. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and and the, the, the companies were big companies. This wasn't like the local library or something. I mean, these were Fortune 500 companies, if I'm remembering correctly. Yes. And I remember you were just at a loss and you said, will you be my agent? You look, <laughs> me. And so what's funny about that is for any artists out there, but I can tell you almost all artists hate negotiating their own fees. So the idea like that as me as a concert pianist, I have to, you know, negotiate the fee in addition to play, you know, all the music. That's like the worst thing in the world. You almost really just want someone to say, well, you do this and you're just like, yes, you know, kind of thing. So that was never anything that I saw myself as being good at or wanting to do or any of that comfortable with, you know? And, um, and so I remember saying to you, I said, look, I'll do it if I have to. And by that, I meant like literally put the bandaid on, plug a hole, like get us to tomorrow, answer, you know, get you this first speaking engagement. And I will say that I think it would have been a lot easier in that I wasn't the artist. So I was advocating on your behalf because that's what you always need, really. You need a buffer. You need a bad guy or something like that. If they get a little annoyed with me, it's not going to reflect on you. But so I remember thinking that's not a gig that I want, especially at that time with close to zero time to prepare. Sam, too, talks about filling in the gaps, finding a place for his ego by recognizing where he might excel when Cassie cannot. We are just 
so different in what we do that she would have needed to fill whatever I'm the role, whatever that I'm doing. I guess that could have been someone else, but I think it was obviously natural because we are a couple. There's still days where I will go pick up the mail or do whatever it is that I think an assistant would probably do in like the normal sense. But I think in t at times I'm acting as like a thousand different things where sometimes I'm making the biggest possible decision and sometimes I'm doing the smallest possible thing. Naturally, Cassie and I have very different strengths. And so like Cassie as like a designer, as a creative, that's her 100% strength. And then for me, it's like the structure and the organization side is very much a strength. And so it was like very natural of like, you know, she's going to do this, I'm going to do this. And then we kind of like eventually start to like build so I think it was just, it happened naturally. I mean, of course, there's times where I'm like doing something. I'm like, I probably shouldn't, I'm not the best person for this. And that's when we would try to like find the right person for it. But by that point, it definitely wasn't Cassie. But when it comes to gaps or a lack of skill and know-how, Anthony says something I find incredibly true. Whatever that person lacks, they often can make up for in the fact that they care about this either as much as anyone in the world or number two. Anybody who's ever started a business with their partner, there's a million um, little things that happen and you become a problem solver really is what it is. You know, I'm drifting to all the times we've been on the road where you're doing a cooking demonstration and there's something missing, you know, and I'm remembering one of the earlier, early ones coming out of the pandemic where we were in New York City in Brooklyn and you had to do this whole I think you had done a TV sec segment, but then you had to do a speaking engagement with a separate company, but it was going to happen in that studio or something. You were missing all these things. It's 90 degrees out, and I'm running around Brooklyn in cabs and stuff trying to find whatever. I can't remember. Just egg, maybe? I don't know. No, it was the, um, the stovetop butane canisters. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I'm calling, you know, like Home Depot, Depot this. Yeah. And I remember like they didn't have it. And they're like, but then there's a, a Lowe's a mile away and I'm running there. So, you know, um, it's not all as glamorous as it looks when you're watching only the person um, on the camera. And those things just have to get get done in my mind. They absolutely have to get done. I'm not one of these people who's like, especially at the beginning, oh, just sub in this or do this. That's not my uh, mentality at all. So, you, uh, I think problem solver is uh, a very important role. And again, as a partner, as a spouse, you're going to care. Somebody would have given up on that tank way earlier. There was no way I was giving up. And you would have had to go, uh, you know, ha have to have gone on air already for me to give up because um, someone was going to have that tank in Brooklyn and I was going to find it. Perhaps that's why Sam thinks. Because we are a couple. I think that just naturally means you can work well together. But can they? I'll be honest. Some of the biggest fights I've had with Anthony in the past two years have been about our not always complementary working styles. As I mentioned, I learned a lot about how Anthony approaches his day job, and sometimes it doesn't necessarily comport with mine. I grew up in a highly hierarchical and structured environment where my productivity was measured literally in six-minute increments. I also matriculated at a firm that required a fair amount of technical knowledge and autonomy. I didn't really train anyone on how to be a lawyer. That just wasn't part of my job. Mentorship? Yes. Guidance? Totally. But on-the-job training? Yeah, no. Implicit in the commercial legal space is the idea that time is money, lots of money. Accordingly, any time spent outside of the billable hour was scrutinized within an inch of its life. 
could this non-billable hour be allocated to somebody else? I thus found it challenging when Anthony and I started working together and I had to explain so much to him. Of course, I wasn't frustrated with him for not knowing what an f-stop was or the difference between extra firm and soft tofu. I would get agitated by the amount of time I felt we were wasting, all the little inefficiencies as I saw them, that added up because I couldn't just mind meld with Anthony and instantly upload everything I knew about photography, videography, editing, writing, storytelling, and of course, cooking directly into his brain. I didn't always do a great job, though, of distinguishing between getting annoyed in general and getting annoyed with him. Because there's the way you deal with your spouse, and then there's the way you deal with other people as a leader. And I know that sometimes the way you deal with me is not the way you would deal with the rest of your team. I, I mean, I would say way more often than not, in fact. And a good leader, I think, makes, uh, for, for starters, makes everybody feel like they have a place, doesn't, you know, hire the right people and put them in the right place to succeed. That's, that's what you got to do. So we could get, you know, talk about that as a separate podcast, but seeing the way you listen and then sometimes say, now I'm leading, uh, I think you do a phenomenal uh, job at that. You don't do that with me, though. You just, you're very much like, you should just know that at this moment, at this time, I want you to grab that camera over there and do this. And like, I don't even know what that camera is or where the tripod is. When did we get that? And, you know, that's, that's, um, that's just something that's like, a, you know, a little quirk or whatever. And um, so we, you know, navigate that. It also seemed, though, that the word deadline didn't mean as much to Anthony as I'd grown accustomed to in my work. Blowing a deadline in the legal industry doesn't just result in a slap on the wrist. It can literally be cause for a malpractice lawsuit and the end of your career. Thus, when I said 5 p.m., I meant 4.55 p.m. at the very latest, whereas for Anthony, it seemed that 5 p.m. was more of a suggestion. Giving constructive feedback was a part of my job as a partner, mentor, and as the vice chair of my practice group. Handling associate evaluations was a big chunk of my job. But it was never something I was particularly good at one-on-one. -on -one. And when the evaluatee is your spouse, egos, bugaboos, pet peeves, and a long history of suppressed resentments can often make giving feedback a risky venture. There are some times where I, where I think a hard part is, I think I have valuable information to give you on something, but I know that you don't maybe want to hear it. That's also something I can relate to because my, my father, my parents, but especially my father, um, wasn't at all a, a, a trained musician or he didn't really know anything about classical music. He couldn't, along with my mother, have been bigger supporters and I love them forever and ever and ever for that. And uh, But if he gave me like some sort of critical mm. kind of thing, it was not really based in anything that made sense. However a lot of times it did make sense because it was so simple that it was right. You know, like sometimes we can be quick to say, but that's not how it's done. And the other person doesn't have those barriers to work through. And they're like, they just say it. And you're like, that's a good point. You know, so I will say that a lot of stuff that I heard from my parents um, was not wrong, you know, but I, I recognize that. I didn't want to hear from my dad, you know, in his little ways he might say like, you know, 
it'd be nice maybe for an encore if you do like, okay, <laughs> would it be nice or is that what I'm supposed to do, you know? Um, or, or worse yet, it'd be nice maybe if you didn't, you know, <laughs> do that or something like that. So I know that there's a lot of times where you don't want to hear what I might have to say or the time that I might want to say it is not the right time or I have to wait for you to let me know that you might be interested in saying it. And I usually preface my comments in this regard by saying, hey, I'm not sure it's right. This is just another, another point of view, another idea for us to consider. And I will say that I feel like my background in music has proven very valuable in terms of both understanding uh, the industry, but also understanding human nature a little bit. And uh, I'm actually surprised by how often things play out the way that I saw them play out, um, you know, 25 years ago. You know, a great reminder for people is that um, uh, some of the other, other days said, you know, Novak Djokovic has a coach. Roger Federer is yeah. the best player in the world. He had a coach. So it's not like criticism as much as like, here's an idea. I think it's challenging just because Cassie is extremely sensitive, but at the same time, she always really truly does want feedback. And she... I think natural. I think most people naturally will take any negative negative feedback or whatever that means, like to some level of like you're attacking me. Mm -hmm. But I think within, I think our relationship is strong and just like yours, where like you're gonna say what you think is right, and if you really strongly believe that like you're helping this person in the long run, I think that's what's most important. So I think I try to say as, you know, politely as possible, but I'll say what I need to say when I need to. And sometimes it leads to a short fight or a short argument, but usually at the end of the day, hopefully like, I, I do think like the next day, or maybe it's like an hour later, she's like, maybe you're right about something. And of course there's times where she'll debate me and maybe I am wrong or I understood something differently. And so um, it doesn't always work out, but I think we just, are open, like she wants my feedback and I will definitely give her. But, in, but of course there's times where we don't agree on a big decision. And I think that's when we just like talk about it. And I think eventually we both agree with whatever decision we make. Like there hasn't been a decision where one of us is like, no, I'm going for this no matter what. And you're just gonna have to take it. Like, I think we will only move forward if we both end up agreeing. Mm -hmm. So I think that's how we work things out. Of all the fights we had, though, only one of them actually sent me to therapy. As a content creator and storyteller, vulnerability is a part of the job description. People see my face and body every single day, and for the type of content I create, strangers get to hear me talk about some of the most private parts of my life. It was thus not at all surprising to me that the amount of trolling I received increased concomitantly with the amount of views my content began to accrue. For every 100 nice comments, I would get at least two rather nasty ones. Many of them were sexist and racist. What did surprise me, however, was how affected I was by them, how easily they could ruin not just a moment, but an entire day. Equally surprising to me, though, was how unequipped my husband appeared to be when it came to helping me cope with this kind of negativity. Cassie, too, dealt with her share of haters, particularly when she was a YouTube fitness creator. The fitness influencer world, as you might imagine, is about as toxic as it gets when it comes to the shameless objectification of women's bodies 
and Sam found himself in a role that he wasn't maybe prepared for. I think with Cassie specifically, it's very much like comments and how much they bother her and me on the other side, never being able to like fully understand and not necessarily relate because I think I do relate, but not be able to like really give her everything that I think she needs sometimes, like from a support standpoint. So I think that's always been a point of struggle for us, at least, because she's definitely very sensitive. And I would say I'm sensitive, but she takes it very, very personally. And that's like an area where I just like struggle to give her the right feedback. I assume in any relationship where your partner is kind of telling you about, you know, what they're going through and what they're dealing with, like you're going to learn about that. And so that's something I didn't know was like such a big part of the fitness industry. I mean, it's obviously super upsetting and super frustrating, and but I think I'm able to take it as, you know, I assume that this person is X type of person or not the right person that would that matters to me or they don't have full context. As Sam touches upon, he wasn't a female fitness influencer, and as such, it was impossible for him to truly empathize with Cassie's struggle. Moreover. Cassie was the face of Blogilates and ultimately PopFlex, and with that came a pressure that could be borne by no one else in the whole world, no matter how much Sam wanted to take the load from her because he loved her. Anthony echoes this sentiment. And I think probably every partner of a creator is, is, has worked with their, their spouse or partner with regards to negative comments. Um, I will say that, and, and I've said this many, many, many times to you, I never pretend that you know, I can understand the effects of negative comments, but while my career as a um, you know, full-time performer was kind of coming to an end when social media was beginning, I have some experience with negativity. I mean, I would wake up the next day after every concert and wait for the, the review to come out, you know? And on even Facebook or YouTube for some of the videos, you know, you'd see something. And so I have some idea of, of what that's all about. So that's something that we've kind of worked through. And I think I know you've become much better equipped to deal with that. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> to some small degree, our chats have, have, have helped in that regard. Now, interestingly enough, when asked what their single biggest contributions to their wives' businesses were, you'll never guess what they said. I would say it's keeping you uh, sane. You have to be in a good place. And so whether it's, it's you know, talking you off the ledge of a negative comment or picking up you know, the correct tofu, <laughs> the grocery delivery people didn't, and, and, and saying, hey, it's not that big of a deal. We just got to go do that. I think those little small things are ultimately way more significant than, you know, the edit at minute 20 and, you know, the podcast YouTube video or something mm. like that. Those, those, those kinds of, and sometimes picking up the tofu is no big deal. And sometimes picking up the tofu is a big deal. And so knowing also <laughs> the difference, uh, I think is important. I would definitely say I'm like a therapist for her. It's shifted a lot, especially because her content used to be much more fitness-based and that was much, I think, harder just because your body is such a big part of your like everything that you do. And it's hard because your body is kind of your billboard when you're in fitness, um, where now because her content's not fitness, it's much easier, I would say. So it was very much like our industry. So now it's much 
better, but she still gets bothered by things. Like balancing our lives, kind of, I think that's really what it is. And so there's gonna be times where there's like highs and lows, but like making sure that Cassie's staying balanced because at the end of the day, like she's the most important part of the whole operation. And so I think I'm, that's my biggest skill is like making sure she keeps balanced. And of course there's gonna be like great, great things and bad things, but just making sure it doesn't go out of hand. For anyone starting out a small business or as was the case with Sam and Anthony, supporting someone they love as they start their own business, it's easy to feel overwhelmed with what you don't know. It quickly became clear that Sam wore a lot of different hats for PopFlex. COO, CFO, HR, and sometimes still videographer, photographer, and project assistant. I wanted to know whether he ever felt any imposter syndrome as he continued to take on roles that a four-year degree and a couple years in insurance underwriting couldn't have possibly prepared him for. I don't think so because it's been so like slow and gradual. I think that's probably a big part of it is that we've been doing this for so long where like over after like doing this for five, six, seven years, you start to like see how everyone else is doing it. And then you realize, oh, we're doing it actually much smarter. Like, especially I'm, I'm guessing like when you talk about working with those fortune 500 companies, like you see how a lot of them work and you're like, how are you guys doing? <laughs> like, how are you guys survive? Like, how is this a fortune 500 company? And then you realize you're, you're understanding it much better than they are in a lot of ways. So I think because it's been 14 years of slow and gradual growth, I think we've learned a lot. At one point, like I was doing the brand deals and I just, or as in I was on the agent side doing the brand deals, then we hired an agent and then we didn't necessarily like that agent, but I, we learned a lot from those like couple years of seeing how they worked. And then we ended up hiring someone in-house where I could kind of train that person. I think just time and experience is really how we've learned almost everything. And of course, we're going to like make mistakes and things like that. And then also leaning on friends like you guys and other people who we know and like asking questions and trying to figure things out. Unofficial roles aside, both Sam and Anthony are in business. In Sam's case, he is an officer in two multi-million dollar enterprises. As a result... I wanted to get their take on how to deal with the uncertainties of entrepreneurship. You know, I think this is an important topic for for anyone who's thinking about a business to know that you do your homework and you make the best educated guess that you, you can. But, but starting a business is never 100%. I think Cassie's interview, which I assume will, will air before this one, she talked about all kinds of failures. So basically, that's how it works. You try something. You're never, I've never heard anybody do, especially someone who started something, who didn't learn the most from a failure that they had. And when I say learn the most, I, I, I mean as opposed to learning it, even the same failure, but from someone else. In other words, in other words someone who experienced it firsthand. I dealt with this manufacturer. You know, not, oh, my friend, you know, Jimmy told me that this is, and you have to be careful. When you have that yourself, you learn so much. So you have to embrace those moments because you're learning stuff that you wouldn't otherwise learn. And then the other part of it is, and probably anybody who's had success knows this, is that with you know, each rung up the ladder of success, you're able to take just a few more chances. You still should put forth the same educated guesses. We have many times when we're talking about, should we maybe hire this person? Should we maybe do this? Should we maybe do this? And often, if you're asking me, my 
response is yes, or I, I think so, or I don't think so, but which way, whichever way I go, I realize that it could be wrong, but I know that we've done our homework and the investment is, is something that we can afford to miss on and what's the worst thing that's going to happen, you know, that kind of uh, attitude. So you don't want to overreach like where you have to move out of your house because you tried something. But if, but if you're just trying um, uh, something that may have a big payoff, you're going to make those investments and you're going to realize, you know what, we didn't need that agent or we didn't need this person to do this, but we would have never known if we hadn't tried. We would be very like comfortable with failure, I think, because every time we would, something would go wrong and be like, okay, now we know how to do that for next time or we know not to do that next time. So I, I don't feel like we ever, we were never in the position where everything failed, you know? And so we would be like, okay, well then we need to focus this direction or we need to shift. And so for that reason, I wouldn't say like there was ever like this doubt of everything, but at the same time, it's exciting. Like, I feel like if someday pop flex, like completely disintegrated, which I hope never happens, but it, at the same time, that's exciting too. Like there's, that means we'll have to start something completely different wow. new, and that'll be like, really cool. Like who knows what that'll be, but it would be exciting too. What I love about Sam's answer is that he emphasizes the role of time. Where Anthony and I have been at this business thing for less than two years, Sam and Cassie have been at it for over a decade. Oftentimes, we zero in on the very visible pinnacle of a success story while glossing over all the mistakes that riddled the very less visible path up the mountain. It was very encouraging to hear Sam talk about getting comfortable with failure and, as he alluded to, the importance of seeking guidance from others. Indeed, Sam actually sought some advice from us, the business newbies, on a particular quandary, and Anthony and I could not wait to weigh in. Cassie just wants to continually work mm -hmm. and like to the point where we're just, you know, it's one in the morning, two in the morning, and like we're just working and working and working and I would be like, oh, you know, like, should we spend time together? Like, or, you know, where our relationship at some point just became work. And like, then all we do is talk about work, which I think we still struggle with. Um, but I think that is probably one of the areas where we're constantly still like just figuring out like how much work, like when do we shut off versus when do we, you know, put power through. It, what's surprising is how hard it is for me to get a time to talk to Cassie, honestly. It'll be like Sunday night and I'll be like, Cassie, like, I have to talk to you. And then we'll spend like 30 minutes or an hour like going through something that we need to go through. Um, but it's really hard. It's funny because even like within our team, like they think that everything is passed between the two of us. And of course we try to talk and the important things get through, but a lot of times they think that like, oh, you know this, right? Or, you know, I'm sure it happens the other way too. So yeah, we have like plenty of set one on, even one-on-ones with other people. And, but then even though we're like definitely the two leaders of the company that should, I think, meet on like a consistent basis, I think because we are talking so often, so that would be actually a really good goal, I think. And it, maybe that would actually help us with some sort of balance of it's like probably 90, 95% work. I'm sure we like, we obviously do things like my family or with her family or whatever it is. But the, I think when we're with other people, that's probably the time we spend the like least about uh, like talking about work. So I, I guess maybe that's the answer spending time with more people because then you're kind of like, well, you can't just talk about work. Yeah. How about you guys? We definitely cut out work. Yeah. yeah. We, we definitely, we have sort of a routine that by dinner time work with the 
with the exception, regular exception of Monday nights when the podcast and a newsletter is going out. We pretty much, you don't like to talk about it. If you wanted to talk, she drives it. So if you wanted to talk about something or something needed to be um, discussed, then we would do it. But I know you don't like to, so I don't. Do you have, do you have any like tips for how you're able to shut it off or feel like you just. I mean, I think that. like, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> I basically just say, I don't want to talk about it. She's got a little uh, thing around her neck. Uh, it's just, I'm like closed. closed. <laughs> um, but no, I think that, you know, our situation's a little different from yours. Yeah, because, way different. We don't I mean, have we don't, like, yeah, full-time employees. Yeah, we don't have a host of employees. We don't have inventory coming in from all parts of the world. We don't have, you know, deadlines pretty much every single day. I think that if we were on a much larger scale, it would be much more challenging but presently you know subject to sort of foreseeable exceptions like Anthony was mentioning with the podcast and we know that Monday is going to oftentimes be a longer day but then we also know Tuesdays are a little bit lighter for us you know but generally speaking you know as Anthony alluded to around six or seven o'clock that's it I don't want to hear anything more about work. Uh, I don't want to hear, you know, anything about, oh, this needs that or, you know, edit this. And similarly, I try not to talk about, oh, I got a negative comment on my Instagram or, you know, this, this video is doing terrible or something like that. So, you know, we generally try and keep it that way. Uh, you know, I don't know how much of the work that you and Cassie do is physical anymore. I know obviously it was very physical at a certain point, but you know, for me right now, I'm in the midst of preparing for my cookbook. So this often entails literally, you know, eight in the morning till, I don't know, five or 6 PM of being on my feet. So that also sort of guards against, you know, just working past a certain point because my body simply can't handle it anymore. I just can't do it anymore. And I think Anthony's very respectful of that. I mean, he's an athlete, so he understands kind of that, you know, being on your feet for too long and just how draining that can be. So if you can sort of have these reasonable um, rules, you know, based upon what your specific situation is where, you know, maybe it's just twice a week where you say, okay, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we're going to try and cut off work at seven o'clock or something like that. And, and that includes conversation about work, not just actually doing it. I think that can be incredibly helpful, not just to your relationship, but to you individually. But again, it also matters like where you are. When I was in my concertizing days, like whatever the work was that needed to get done, I'd be up till three in the morning practicing somewhere, you know, so it's, it's like, I wouldn't want to be doing that for my whole life. And now I'm older. And so, you know, like you said, you hope that in your five-year plan. Yes. In that, your five-year plan, yeah, you, you <laughs> Tuesdays and Thursdays. <laughs> you back and finish the Americans, which you, which you better. Earlier, we heard both gentlemen talk about how their excessive objectivity might make it a little challenging for them to understand why Cassie and I get so upset over the haters and the trolls. Well, it turns out that there's a real benefit to that objectivity. As I've said time and time again, sometimes we'll experience the biggest success in our lives when we surround ourselves with people who believe in us just a little bit more than we believe in ourselves. Of all the things that I think are embodied by the idea of a supporting partner, Sam and Anthony perfectly encapsulate how they more than make up for our deficit in faith. We actually fully believe, like I fully believe in Cassie and that like maybe she's not believing in herself 100% of the time. Maybe I'm not even believing in myself 100% of the time, but I am believing 100%. That's a great answer, yeah. You 
we're looking objectively at the situation, you know. You've had many people tell you, for example, that you're expressing doubt about something and, the, and there are people that you respect greatly and they're like, this is a sure bet, you know. So we can look more objectively 100% of the time than, than you can. And that would be the same for anybody. Like when I was recording an album, I, at the end of the day, I know every little thing in there, you know, little sound in the room that wasn't quite, and nobody else knows that and they're looking at it more objectively. So that's really, really important. And then the both of you are just like so amazing that it's, you're two people that are very easy to believe in. And believing in someone doesn't always mean that every, every handbag or every Instagram post has to be the greatest thing ever, you know, uh, in terms of how it's received because you only have so much control, but you know that the majority of the times things are going to stick because of, of the track record that, you know, we've seen. So what do you think? Is it true that behind every great woman, there's a strong man? Probably not. There are plenty of great women out there who've made it because they are supported by other strong women, a community of peers made up of men and women and others. There may even be extraordinary women who've been catapulted to success by non-humans, a love of animals, a strong commitment to the environment. Wisdom, however, begins with humility. The willingness to accept that we don't know everything, that we're not good at everything, and therefore, in order to be great, we must look outside of ourselves and in some cases, lean on the strength of others. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Are You Ready? with Joanne Molinaro. If you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor, hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Leave a comment and a rating below. Tell me what you want to hear about next. If you really enjoyed this episode, it would mean so much to me if you shared this with your friends, your family, your loved ones, your colleagues, or anyone else you think would enjoy this chat with Sam and Anthony. Otherwise, until next week, I hope you have a lovely and wonderful day.